This is Jim Hughes with AFIO Now. We are a program of recorded interviews with uh, senior U.S. intelligence officers, primarily those who have been retired, but on occasion an active duty officer. And today we have that special privilege. To help me um, co-host today's session, I'd like to welcome back to the program uh, my friend and fellow AFIO board member, Jim Bruce. Jim is a retired senior CIA analyst. He was the uh, Deputy Chief for Science and Technology for the National Intelligence Council, and he is now with the RAND Corporation. Jim, welcome to AFIO Now. Well, thank you, Jim. I'm uh, del delighted to be here, and especially delighted to be able to reintroduce Shelby Pearson uh, to our AFIO Now series. Um, uh, just a word about uh, Shelby. She's uh, she's the election threat executive, sometimes referred to by the acronym ETE, uh, in the intelligence community, which gives her responsibility of, uh, of, of of managing and coordinating all of the intelligence community resources to support election security, and um, and uh, that's a that's a big responsibility. In 2018, she was uh, the national intelligence crisis manager uh, for the 2018 election. So um, uh, this is, uh, as you know, is on everybody's radar screen about election security. And uh, I have to say that uh, when a senior government official made the point that the 2020 election was the most secure in history, I can assure you that Shelby was not exactly standing on the sidelines uh, to, to, to make that an absolutely true statement. Uh, so Shelby, we're so delighted to have you back. Uh, uh, I should say one more thing. Before her appointment in 2017 as election threat executive, Shelby was the National Intelligence Manager for Russia and Eurasia, and it really reflects her uh, her uh, her career interest in uh, in uh, in Russia uh, uh, and Eurasia, and she's had extensive experience in that in that area. And I think it was no coincidence that her appointment to election threat executive, built on uh, her uh, well-established credentials in foreign denial and deception, uh, which I think gave her a special edge on that particular problem. And it was actually the foreign denial and deception. Uh, that occasioned uh, my earlier interaction with Shelby back in the mid 1990s when we conspired with a few others uh, to produce what I think is a uh, uh, still standing as the as the longest, most thorough, in-depth national intelligence estimate uh, on a significant and, and important subject. So, Shelby, welcome, welcome back. We're so delighted to have you back because uh, uh, this is this is actually a repeat appearance from an earlier presentation that you did. Uh, 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 covered the earlier uh, 2016 and 2018 elections. So uh, it was done last last October, uh, just before the 2020 election. And we really look forward to getting a follow-up from you uh, because the 2020 elections have come and gone and we now have a we now have a, an empirical track record of knowing, uh, having a much, much better insight anyway of what happened in the 2020 elections. And uh, that's why we'd like to have you uh, come and, and give us a readout about what what uh, what what really happened with the with foreign intervention. So, um, looking back at your former uh, AFIO now interview, I thought your remarks were especially prescient um, on on the issue of of making the point that the principal Russian objective was to delegitimize our democratic processes and undermine faith and confidence of the of the voters uh, in uh, in uh, U.S. elections. So um, we want you to, to take this opportunity to do a retrospective on the 2020 election and discuss the issue, of course, of foreign influence and foreign interference uh, in, our, in the recent presidential election. Happily, uh, there was an unclassified 
intelligence community assessment released just in March, just a couple of months ago, that provided a lot of information on that subject. And uh, when I read it, uh, what I noticed were some, you know, some uh, similarities with the prior uh, 2016 election, but also some differences. And what I'd like to focus on here are some of the differences uh, in the foreign in the story of foreign intervention in those in those two elections. So let's start with Russia. In 2016, Russia was by far the main foreign actor um, targeting the presidential race. Uh, Russia seems to have taken a different approach in 2020. It much reduced its previous emphasis on social media and focused instead on pushing influence narratives through the Russian intelligence proxies to U.S. media organizations, to some U.S. officials, and actually some prominent U.S. officials, including some that were close to President Trump and his administration. This immediately suggests two questions. One is, how do you explain this change in emphasis when the 2016 formula for Russia emphasizing covert influence on voter perceptions through social media seems such a winning formula? And related to that, can you please elaborate on the techniques of this different approach made in 2020 that uh, utilized the parent agents of influence close to the former president? Sure, Jim, and I should start off by saying that I'm delighted to be back with you, obviously, as a close colleague and friend, um, and also to share some of our reflections of 2020 with the AFIO community, um, which I hope in retirement I'll be a close member of and participant in. And again, I really appreciate your comments about the work that the intelligence community and, frankly, our collective colleagues have done on the area of election security. I think it's really been a high point for many of us in our career and something that all intelligence officers, I think, should be proud of. So relative to your comments about Russia, um, one, I, I appreciate uh, the characterization of Russia's efforts as a winning formula in 2016. I might uh, debate that in another forum with you. But what I will say is, first, the intelligence community doesn't assess the impact of those campaigns in 2016, and you and I have discussed in other forums, the broad base of uh, analysis in the private sector and in civil society on the effect of those campaigns. But what I will say about Russia is that, um, frankly, all foreign actors, is that we expect their behaviors and tactics to evolve over time. It is no surprise to you um, that uh, the sharpening and focusing and re-vectoring of any intelligence campaign, whether directed against an election or, or any other um, potential target, changes over time. And, and again, we saw that evolve from 2016 to 2018 to 2020. Um, what we will say is that in Russia's case, they may have calculated that the amount of public and U.S. government pressure um, would make their approach in 2020 potentially less successful. I think you've heard us and many others talk about publicly the very good work in terms of sharing information from the intelligence community with social media platforms to consider relative to their terms of service how to remediate inauthentic content. And so one could argue that the pressure and uh, frankly operationalization of those activities made it a little bit harder for the Russians to maintain a persistent presence on those platforms, but I would point out that they still do that work. Um, in addition, um, I do think that they shifted to a more targeted approach. And as you characterized, um, it was not only uh, laundering narratives using proxies, but also a, a broader base of websites where they were 
uh, disseminating information and narratives to uh, a base of American clients here in the United States. So it's frankly an evolution of what we saw in 2016, which is um, not just shifting from one to another, but a both and. Um, the kind of narratives that Russia used um, were not created out of whole cloth. And I think we've talked about this previously, is that they are pushing on narratives that already exist within the United States. Um, and are already subject of considerable political debate and discussion within the US. Uh, so it makes sense that they would look at areas and topics and persons where they would already have a bit of traction uh, within the American political climate. And so we think that that certainly was, was part of their agenda going into 2020. Yeah, uh, yeah. Th thank you. That's a uh, has a lot of clarification to what has been a you know pretty opaque, uh, uh, broad understanding about the uh, about the different role of Russia in 2020. Uh, this uh, provides a nice segue to China. Uh, the intelligence community assessment that I mentioned that was published and uh, the unclassified version that was published uh, uh, back in March showed that China actually did not attempt to influence the presidential election. And that came as a surprise uh, to to a number of us. Uh, why not? Um, what, what do you think explains the, the, uh, the I would say effectively the non-role of China uh, in uh, in the 2020 election? I'm wondering why why did it opt out when Russia did not? Um, and, uh, a related issue, and I don't know if you can address this, but I hope you can. Uh, the the uh, the assessment points out that the National Intelligence Officer for Cyber disagreed with that judgment. Uh, that they that the, the Chinese uh, didn't uh, uh, intervene uh, in any way, and uh, and he argued that uh, they actually did take some steps uh, to undermine Trump's re-election prospects. And if so, uh, what were those steps, and why was that a controversial issue in the assessment? Jim, I do appreciate um, spending time uh, a bit on non-Russia actors. I think it's important to point out to. All of our listeners um, and your members that this is not a Russia only problem and that although uh, Russia certainly got a considerable amount of, of our attention in the intelligence community and frankly across the United States and globally for their activity in this space, we see this as a global problem. And we also see this as, as actor agnostic. Um, it is very important for us to communicate that we will not tolerate any intervention in U.S. democratic processes or undermining of U.S. institutions, regardless of the actor or sponsor. So um, I, I certainly want to make mention of that, that for us, as much as we have experience in the Russia activity, that the intelligence community today sees this as a global problem and will be handling this as an intelligence topic going forward um, with that in mind. The other comment that I'd like to make before addressing your specific questions on China is uh, certainly for our members as former intelligence officers, I wanted to point out that this is a declassified intelligence community assessment. And I think one of the very important things that we did in 2016 or coming out of 2016 as the ICA was released in 2017 was to really make sure that the intelligence judgments and what we know as key judgments, or we call them KJs as you know in national documents, are identical to the ones in the compartmented and highly classified version. I think we foot stomp that at every chance we get to make sure that 
um, all of our customers, and in this case, the American people, know that there is absolutely no uh, difference or delta between the versions of the documents other than the level of specificity and some of the specific characterizations of our sources. But the judgments have remained identical across products, and I think that's part of the intelligence community's commitment to transparency so that the, the public sees um, our information just as our leaders uh, uh, would. And so for us, I think that was a huge accomplishment. So in terms of talking about China, um, as we explained in, in the ICA, as you mentioned, uh, we assessed that China was concerned about, frankly, the blowback uh, from a potential effort uh, to influence the election and concluded that, frankly, the differences between the two U.S. candidates for, um, were sort of inconsequential for China's broader interests um, in U.S.-China relations. And so I, I do think it is important um, to highlight that all of our adversaries really do look at um, political influence, election interference through the lens of cost and benefit. And again, we um, believe that again, China had looked at those potential paths and vectors and, and simply decided that um, it, it would not necessarily be in their interest to go any further. Uh, and certainly given what we have uh, reacted to on the Russia front, I think you, they could rightfully see that our reaction and our uh, response to a potential intervention in the U.S. elections uh, would potentially not be in their interest. Um, I do think that most IC analysts interpreted China's public criticism of President Trump um, and his administration as being tied to China's uh, shift in policies rather than a specific effort to undermine his reelection. And so that, I think, was the premise of the dissent that you mentioned that we articulated in the document. I do think, of course, many of your organization's members know that valuing analytic debate and analytic dissent is a core component of good analytic tradecraft. So I, I think um, we also want to foot stump that we welcome that type of dissent and wanted to characterize it accurately uh, relative to what you saw in the ICA. So for us, um, seeing that type of, of disagreement and different views on similar reporting, I think is, is part and parcel of good analytic work. The dissent that you do talk about, I think, um, seeks to, to see the information uh, on China in a different light that as much as the Chinese um, were concerned about US-China relations, that at the same time, they probably were not interested in a second China, uh, excuse me, second Trump administration. So making the distinction between what is and isn't election related, I think has been the subject of considerable analytic discussion within the community. And the um, NIO for cyber felt uh, very strongly that at least identifying that some of the reflections that we had in China reporting uh, could be related to election interests was was very purposeful for him. Um, but I, again, I welcome that type of dissent and the type of rigor in our analytic tradecraft that highlights difference of opinion on, on a broad swath of intelligence reporting. And I'm sure you faced very similar challenges in, in your own analytic career in drafting uh, national intelligence documents. We don't always arrive at the same uh, judgment uh, looking at the same information. And so that's, I think, a very welcome component of our work. Yeah, you know, Shelby, when you make the point that uh, China had multiple motives for uh, its effective uh, non-intervention role, uh, one of them had to do with uh, uh, with anticipating blowback 
uh, from the United States, and that raises obviously the uh, the issue that the United States is uh, not not a uh, not an inconsequential in, uh, player in how in other states' calculations about whether or not uh, to to intervene in our elections. Uh, for the 2020 election, I have the impression that that uh, our elections were actually fair game because there were a number of other actors, uh, one of which was Iran. And I think that was one of the surprises for me in reading that uh, reading that intelligence assessment. But I'm wondering now, you know, what were Iran's uh, capabilities to actually intervene in the election? Uh, did did Iran exceed our expectations? For example, that we do we expect as much? Um, uh, uh, it's just done from the outside. Uh, I had not anticipated that Iran would be a, a much of a player at all. So I'm wondering what were its influence objectives? What was it trying to accomplish relative to the two candidates? Uh, and what were its principal methods? What, what did Iran actually do? And did its intervention utilize all of its capabilities or did it hold some in abeyance? Uh, and if so, why? Again, I, I appreciate um, you casting a wide net in, in looking at the nations that we're most interested in. Again, this centers around Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, and, and others. Um, and, and so we look at this as not just, in, as I said, a Russia problem or a Russia-China problem. So Iran was already, I think, within, um, uh, and you saw from our public comments earlier over the summer leading into the elections that Iran was and is an actor of consequence as it relates to influence. Um, and certainly from a geopolitical perspective, uh, certainly is, um, very interested, if not concerned about U.S. politics and what actions will the U.S. Uh, take in, in certainly leading up to the 2020 elections against Iran. Um, and you certainly heard a very strident uh, U.S. policy against Iran. So it would be no surprise necessarily uh, for them to take interest in political transitions here uh, within the U.S. We mostly observe Tehran employing propaganda and social media influence operations that simply advance their goals of reducing former President Trump's re-election chances, uh, sowing chaos uh, centered around very provocative topics and weakening America's faith in our democratic processes, which again is relatively accessible using social media platforms and other uh, uh, online components to disseminate information um, to Americans. I think for us, what was um, uh, and activities of interest, if I can put it that way, uh, centered on the very strident actions Iran undertook in late October of 2020. So right before Election Day, Iran um, began an aggressive targeted operation that included emailing threats to individual Americans and posting videos purporting to demonstrate election fraud. Um, I think you're already familiar with the public disclosures that we made. I believe it was around uh, the 22nd of October, where we highlighted uh, these operations, both sponsored by the Iranians and the Russians to the American people. Um, DNI Radcliffe at the time immediately called a press conference. And in fact, um, it, it's certainly an event that demonstrated the intelligence community's very swift ability to operationalize information, um, to publicly attribute the uh, operation to Iran in terms of the dissemination of the Proud Boys emails to certain constituents 
Um, and this action, along with public notifications that the FBI did uh, with specific targets of Iranian campaigns, um, this may have put Tehran on notice and con uh, convinced them to not take further action. But I think as you are already tracking, the FBI had also done a variety of public warnings after the election um, on their Enemies of the People website that frankly published very candid and threatening information against U.S. election officials. So for us, I think, um, Jim, the bottom line is Iran has always been a threat actor, full stop. Um, and yet I think we're reflecting on uh, th that very uh, accelerated and threatening activity that they undertook very close to the election. Um, I can't comment in this form about other capabilities that they could have deployed and chose not to. But what I will say is um, it is very important to see that an actor like Iran, which frankly, um, uh, there are other countries uh, around the world that have similar capabilities that could post information that reach Americans, again, right before an election day, that are, are potentially impactful, if not threatening. And we're going to do everything we can to the extent that the intelligence community has insight into those activities to either um, uh, impact those operations. You saw us do some of that in 2018. Uh, before the midterms uh, with NSA and Cyber Command, or frankly, as you saw us in 2020, go public and warn American voters that this information is being sponsored uh, by a, a foreign entity and, and, and again, would not be tolerated as a threat to uh, voting activities in the subsequent days. Yeah, thank you. That, uh, that illuminates uh, a problem that I, that I think is not widely understood in the, uh, in the voting public. Um, so clearly, Russia was obviously a, a, a big, a big player. China, uh, uh, to me, surprisingly, a non-player. Iran was a participant. North Korea was. We haven't talked about North Korea, but clearly that was a, that was another state actor that was involved. I'm interested also in the other. We'll call them minor players, um, non-state non actors. So um, their efforts apparently were small compared with the state actors. Um, but such minor players as uh, Lebanon, Hezbollah. Cuba, Venezuela, and, and even cyber criminals did attempt influence operations, according to this unclassified uh, assessment. Can you elaborate on some specific examples or and discuss motives and speculate on whether these minor players and others will be an even bigger problem in future elections? Jim, I appreciate uh, you asking uh, about particularly um, what this looks like going forward. and. For us, it, it is, as I said a few minutes ago, um, a global reality for us. And both the opportunity uh, presented to nations to frankly have pretty easy access to the American public um, helps these influence operations and is now looked, as, looked to by some of these nations as a viable um, opportunity for them or threat vector to get their narrative and, and their information operation off the ground. I think for us, um, in terms of motivation, some of those uh, motivations varied by the countries and organizations that you mentioned, which include um, uh, seeking to support former President Trump. Some of those nations certainly saw 
a, a political opportunity in in uh, a second Trump administration, and some hoped for a win by President Biden. And again, uh, as you know, the intelligence community has a long history of of looking at what we've always characterized as plans and intentions and political analysis of those countries. I, I think um, certainly reflects the geopolitical calculus of each of those individual nations as to what the political climate in the United States means for them and relationships with the United States. Um, and our allies uh, going forward. We do anticipate that more foreign actors will attempt and continue influence operations in the future. As I said, I think this is a, a viable and easy path. Um, but as we mentioned in, in our first exchange on Russia, those tactics can evolve and, and use different um, technologies and different vectors than just, let's say, US social media platforms, as we discussed. Um, and so we do think that those are comparatively low cost and don't require special capabilities or accesses. And so harnessing these types of tools, even relatively small actors can have an outsized impact on US politics and policy. So this is, I think, part of the reason, and you'll hear me talk about this uh, in perhaps some of my concluding thoughts, why we're looking at countering malign influence, not just around elections, but frankly, looking at it as a persistent climate in which we're operating today. And the US intelligence community will be a key component and supporter of countering those activities worldwide. Shelby, just as uh, the techniques of foreign actors has, uh, has evolved over time, uh, so too has our understanding of and response uh, to those techniques. So I see actually an emerging discipline here of countering uh, foreign involvement in our elections. Uh, one of the things that the uh, that that unclassified assessment pointed out was the distinction between what it called influence on the one hand and interference on the other. And uh, I think this actually turned out to be a pretty important distinction. So based on the 2016 and the two 2020 elections, influencing public opinion through the manipulation of social media appears to be a more promising path to affecting an election outcome and interfering with the technical aspects of, uh, of interference, which is, uh, uh, you know, uh, manipulating voter registration, for example, or the tabulating the ballot counts or, or even reporting results. So the, it's the distinction between influencing social media on the one hand versus a manipulation or attempted manipulation of the actual technical aspects of the mechanics of the election. So my question is, uh, will the added safeguards of our election machinery continue to provide good protection to foreign interference? Or will countries like Russia and China bring more advanced cyber capabilities that could substantially threaten our election integrity through more successful interference in the technical aspects of our election process? It's a great question, Jim, because in this particular ICA, we did very purposefully make the, the, the distinction and you saw as reflected in, in our very clear definitions of, of trying to make the distinction you mentioned between election interference in the actual infrastructure of uh, voting and casting of ballots and broader influence operations. So it, it is a very important distinction. It has uh, those distinctions have ramifications for us both on policy as well as how we best in the intelligence community assess those activities. What I will say is I don't know, Jim, that I would characterize one path as more promising than 
The other, I would say one path is potentially less risky than the other, which is a direct cyber intervention into what we have already declared from a policy and political perspective as critical infrastructure in the United States, coupled with infrastructure that's associated with our democracy. I think we have very clearly messaged that there will be strict and pretty discerning consequences to that type of activity. Whereas I think on the influence side, the social media issues and potentially using proxies and affecting Americans um, uh, perspectives and opinions on the political climate might seem as a more palatable path that those countries can pursue. So it's not that one is more promising than the other, um, because both can be very, very impactful, as you pointed out. But I do think that nations um, will look at both components of U.S. democracy and infrastructure as equally of interest. I do think one one issue that I want to point out, and I know that this is very relevant um, to your members today, is some of this infrastructure-related information you mentioned, voter registration databases, is publicly available. And even using publicly available information and suggesting that somehow it was either illicitly acquired or is being used to tamper with voting processes or any type of manipulation, I think can really undermine confidence in our voting activity. I think everyone is well aware that this continues to be an enduring concern for Americans. How secure is our election? So even if you never touch the actual infrastructure and network, there's enough that you can make infrastructure a key challenge and a key concern for Americans to where you chip away, frankly, at the confidence in our infrastructure. So yes, you could call that an influence operation, but it really does speak to threats to infrastructure because they're taking advantage of information that's publicly available. So um, I wouldn't say that that one is gonna outpace the other. It can be, as you mentioned, a bit more difficult to penetrate some of our uh, uh, infrastructure um, through a variety of vectors. But as we told you in 2020, that isn't a threat that has completely abated um, and collection against US infrastructure and cyber attacks, as you saw with the colonial pipeline, uh, in this case, uh, uh, by non-government sponsored um, actors persists. And so for me, certainly going forward, I look at those as, as sort of equally threatening vectors as we go forward. You know, um, when, you, when you survey the threat and the way you have, uh, it obviously points, uh, uh, points out the importance of our ability to deal with this problem better in the future, even better in the future than, than we have in the past. And so I want to put you in a, in a forecasting mode here, uh, if I can. Uh, looking ahead to the next election cycle, which, of course, are the midterm elections in 2022 and then the next presidential election in 2024, uh, I'm wondering how, how serious are these foreign threats to U.S. elections, particularly the presidential election? And are we doing enough to deter and to counter, and to counter them? So I'm wondering, you know, what, what should we be doing in both intelligence and in countermeasures to deter and neutralize foreign efforts to influence and interfere in our future election outcomes? Just as the discipline of doing this work is evolving, so too are the organizations. And, I, and there was, of course, a, a congressional 
mandate to stand up uh, a new organization to help to deal with this problem uh, that was written up, up as the, quote, Foreign Malign Influence Center. And I know that the DNI now tasked to do this, to stand this organization up, is, uh, is uh, working on that. And I wonder if in, in your forecasts of the foreign uh, influence and, and interference threat, if you could also address something about this new uh, this newly established uh, Foreign Malign Influence Center. We'd love to learn a little more about that. Sure. I think in terms of forecasting, I, I want to start with, with one very, very clear statement, which is election security is a top priority for the intelligence community. This was not just an episodic um, uh, window between 2016 and 2020 that, that we had to deal with. I think we feel a lot of questions about um, well, in, now in 22 or 24, we're just going to go back to normal. That That is not the case. I think we have ample evidence. And frankly, I think an appreciation for uh, both the threats to critical infrastructure, which include elections, and foreign influence, which includes influence around political processes, are enduring threats for us going forward. So unequivocally, um, even as we talk about the concept of foreign malign influence, which I'll, I'll mention in just a minute, um, we are not in any way sunsetting or changing our full commitment to securing the U.S. elections and doing that by, with, and through supporting DHS and FBI and our state and local officials. So we are already within the intelligence community preparing for the 22 election cycle, which doesn't just happen in November. It, it begins with a series of activities, as you know, um, and our commitment to election security is unwavering. So I think we're wanting to make sure um, as we go through and, and create new um, administrative structures, which I'll talk about in a minute, that, that we're very clear that election security is, is part and parcel, not only of the success upon which we will build, um, but will for, forever remain a priority for us uh, as, as we look to uh, the information that we see on the landscape going forward. So 2022 is right on our right on our docket of priorities. Um, so that being said, I think um, one, I just commented that the realities of threats to infrastructure, both related to, to voting processes and the influence measures surrounding that will remain a threat. Um, and yet they are also, those behaviors are not necessarily anything new. You know, as you mentioned in your opening comments, you and I have been addressing information operations for quite some time. And yet we're looking at them through a more contemporary lens by which technology is allowing for both the acceleration and deployment of information operations, and also a level of accessibility to the American public and our allies that they didn't have before. In addition to that, I do think that our authoritarian regimes are able to use um, the whole authoritarian apparatus available to them, which includes, as we mentioned earlier, the use of proxies and, and a full suite of of their institutions um, to manipulate uh, the situation around our democratic processes. So it, I think it's a both and, but these, I am very cognizant that the issues that, that feed our work on malign influence are not new. They surround counterintelligence, cyber, plans and intentions, technology, um, and, and even threat finance. And those are things that the intelligence community had worked for, for decades before 2016. And, and we, will so, we will continue to do so going forward. I think what we wanna do, Jim, and the opportunity presented to the intelligence community today is to further integrate those activities to where 
we can inform our policymakers, not just about counterintelligence threats, but merge that with the information that we see in threat finance, merge that with the information that we see on, on countries pursuing technology in which to manipulate um, uh, the public, like deep fakes, merge that with information about plans and intentions. So I think there's a full swath of intelligence information. And frankly, as you know, our colleagues work very diligently on those topics already. But what we want to do, and I think the mandate of the Foreign Malign Influence Center is to deepen our understanding of the holistic nature of this threat and do it in a way and produce intelligence in a way that um, better informs our customers of the, the, the simultaneous nature of this threat and present it in a manner that, again, deepens their understanding and, and frankly, then gives them some additional decision runway uh, to inform policy going forward. So the Foreign Malign Influence Center, yes, as you mentioned, is a requirement by statute in Congress. Uh, and frankly, I think there's a tremendous amount of support for, for deepening our work on malign influence um, as led by the Biden White House. Um, I, I think uh, countering malign influence is a core component of a healthy democracy so that our debate is our own, our infrastructure is our own. And I think you've heard me say that in our earlier engagements. And so what we're also looking to do is make this not just about elections. This is not just the periodic um, wave tops of, of an engagement every two years. But as you know, um, the, the persistence of this threat uh, necessitates a persistent posture. And so we will be looking to um, both leading the intelligence community on this topic, but supporting the intelligence community in terms of providing uh, the support that the ODNI already does in terms of how we specifically prioritize topics, how we want to rack and stack collection and analysis, um, how we want to deconflict operations. So there really is an opportunity to simply expand the work that the ODNI did on elections and, and frankly, build a persistent posture around all the colleagues that bring a considerable amount of expertise um, uh, to this topic as it is pretty interdisciplinary. So we're looking forward to that. I believe that the initial um, standup at the center will be in the fall, uh, just coming up right around the corner. Um, and as I know, all of you as members of the Intelligent Workforce know it takes a little bit of time and administrative energy to create a new organization. So uh, we're spending our, our good time this spring and summer uh, to do the good work to create a center that is both um, very relevant to the topic and helps our customers, but also is one of service to the intelligence community organizations that already do great work in this area. Well, one might say that's a very timely and important idea. Um, Shelley, I, I really want to uh, emphasize our appreciation for your agreement to, to participate in this AFIO Now uh, inter, uh, interview series. Uh, you've certainly highlighted the important, one might say, indispensable role of the intelligence community uh, in contributing to and, and providing for the integrity of U.S. elections. And it's hard to know what's, uh, what's more important than that in a, in a democratic society. Thank you, Shelby. Thank you so much for your significant contributions. It is my pleasure, and I'm certainly hoping to, to do right by the legacy of those who have served before me and uh, certainly the members of your organization. I really appreciate the time. Thank you, Shelley. Jim? Well, this has been a unique privilege to witness a landmark session on a topic of true national security and from the U.S. intelligence community's um, senior executive for uh, election security. I want to thank uh, sincerely 
Shelby Pearson, the ODNI, and um, Jim Bruce for an interview that I know will be of significant interest to our members. Thank you very much. Thank you.